Good morning again, friends. I have a, uh, a close friend of mine. He's like a brother. Uh, he, uh, I was hanging out with him one day, and he had a T-shirt on, a very interesting T-shirt, the kind of T-shirt with words and an image that cause you to pause and stop to think. And I wanted to share his shirt on the screen. I don't know if you can read it from where you're sitting. It says, only Judy can judge me. <laughs> now, he knows I'm a pastor. He knows all about my faith. And I was taken back at first when I saw the shirt, and I said, Judy? Who's Judy? <laughs> and uh, has anybody ever heard of Judge Judy? Right? A number of you. Yes, yes. So she's, she's very popular. She's been around a, a long time. Th that's not an old joke, but she is old. She is old. Anyway, the, the reason why he likes her so much, he watches her, you know, execute justice in the courtroom, is because she is so truthful and discerning. She just, she gets through all the distractions and the lies, and she just seems to be able to narrow in right on the truth, and she cares about simple justice, people saying and doing what's right, and uh, she cuts through all the stuff to where she gets down to it, and a lot of people appreciate her, and uh, I, whether you've ever heard of her or not or, or watched her or not, any of us, if, if we had a problem that had to go before the court, what kind of judge would you want? I mean, think about it. Who, who would you want in authority judging your case, giving a, a discernment about your situation? Who would you want? Well, we would want someone, uh, we would want a good judge. And Jesus, in one of his parables, we've been learning, learning through the parables, in one of his parables, he uses a judge to get our attention and to teach us about God and how we approach him. What do we think about God as the one true judge? What is our attitude toward him? What is our expectation about his judgment? What, what do we think uh, how do we think uh, he executes judgment? And so he uses this parable, and it's found in Luke chapter 18. So in your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 18. It might be titled in your Bible, the parable of the persistent widow or the unjust judge, or uh, it has a number of titles, but he uses a judge to teach us. It begins in verse 1, now he, he being Jesus, told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. At, at the very start of it, Luke, the author, who wasn't here when Jesus first taught this, he was taking eyewitness accounts. So Luke learned this from the disciples, that there was a time where Jesus wanted to teach them about prayer. And when you think about prayer, this is, this is us coming before God, the throne in heaven, and uh, sharing our needs with Him, sharing our concerns, our, our debts, our problems, something that we need a higher power to, to judge. We need someone to intervene. And so he, he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. He doesn't want us to give up coming to Him, and so He gives us a parable. Verse 2, there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. So the very beginning, he gives this parable. He says there's a judge in a certain town. 
Back in Jesus' day, judges were not too dissimilar from the way that they are now. Of course, they had to work a little differently because, uh, you know, this is a different time and place, a different culture. But most of the towns in Jesus' day were smaller towns. They were small like you could say our town. They were smaller than Newton. They were smaller than Elbing. They, they were smaller towns of maybe one, two, three hundred people. And so you would need a judge uh, that would work a circuit that would go around from town to town. And the way they did this is they had associates with them. These, these were like lawyers, understudies. Um, they would have these associates come with them, and they would, they would have a tent. Think of like this big tent gazebo, a portable dwelling place. And they would go to a town that they needed to go to, and every town had a gate, some kind of gate, uh, a front part of the town, like, welcome to Newton, you know, welcome to Nazareth, you know, that kind of idea. They would have a gate, and the, the judge would go to that place, and they'd set up this tent, and it would have walls to it because of the sun and weather and wind and sand and all that kind of stuff. They would have a portable dwelling, and the judge would go there with his associates to these smaller towns, and he would have to visit from town to town. The reason why they met at the gates is because that's where the elders, the leaders of the city, the local, public, uh, the local leaders, that's what they would go, and so the judge would get there, everyone would get excited, and he would be either elected by Rome or by other leaders of the Jewish people. And it just depended on which city who elected him. So it's different. There's not one, one, one size fits all. But in this parable, it seems like this judge is going, and he was a judge in a certain town. He gets there. And the way that they worked is they were, there would not be a line outside of the tent. There wouldn't be this big line of people saying, I need my case heard, I need my case heard. Instead, these associates of the judge would go into the town, they would talk to the leaders of the city, kind of like in our day, they would go to the city hall type thing, they would talk to the leaders, and they would say, what needs to be done? And of course, the most powerful and, and the rich would be the first ones to say, here's the case that you need to hear. And so his associates had a lot of power, the judge had a lot of power, and what would likely happen is the associates would take bribes. They would take money. So there would be a guy, if he's rich and wealthy and he needs this to discern so he can mark his land or have this or take these sheep or there's a family feud or whatever happens, you would want to go to the judge. You'd want to be the first ones to go to the judge and you'd slip them some money like, hey, hey, judge, how's it going? Or hey, associate, how's it going? You'd slip them money and they go, oh, your case is very important. Then they go to the judge and the judge would receive from the associates, here are the cases we must hear. That's kind of how it worked. That's the, that's the understanding we have of how judges worked back then. And in some places, it's not even different today. It's the same way today. So a judge was in a certain town, and in this town, it says that this particular judge did not fear God or respect people. He was godless. He was an atheist when atheism wasn't cool. He, he lived in a culture, there's, there's four descriptions of ancient Near East culture that have been true, it's still true for the Bedouins today in this area. There's four conditions of ancient, the ancient world that we lear, learn about. It's polytheistic. Nearly everybody believed in multiple gods. Almost everybody, except the Jews. And that didn't start until the 7th century BC. Uh, even when Moses was taking the people out of the lands, the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me. He didn't say there is no other God that exists. 
He just says, you shall have no other God. It wasn't until the 700s BC when Isaiah the prophet comes on the scene and, and we get the, the servant songs after Isaiah chapter 40 and we get this proclamation the first time in scripture chronologically where you get, there is no other God. So in Jesus' day, nearly every culture except for the Jewish people was polytheistic. They believed in many, many gods. They were, both, they were also monarchical, meaning they, they had a king. Every, every town had a king. It wasn't a democracy like we think of. Everybody had a king. The other is it was patriarchal. So in the family, uh, the men held the power and the rights to things, the firstborn son, that kind of idea. If you were a daughter, you did not receive the same inheritance as a son would receive. It was patriarchal. The men were the ones that went to war. They fought. They provided. They protected. Uh, part of the reason why women didn't vote was not just because of dictatorship or anything like that. It's because the women didn't go to war. They didn't fight for the rights. The children and women didn't do the work in order to have the land, and so they wanted the ones voting and in power, the ones that are giving up their lives and putting their skin in the game. So in this culture, it's polytheistic, it's monarchical, it's uh, patriarchal, and it's slaveholding, and that's a whole different subject. So in this day and time, this judge, it says, did not fear God. This is a big deal. Even though many gods existed in the minds of the culture, this guy didn't fear any of them. And he also didn't, didn't fear the God of the Old Testament. Now, this is a big deal because in the Old Testament, God gave us instructions over and over that your judges, your leaders, the men that are elected to protect the people and lead the people and do what's right, they better be just. And one of the things they never, ever should do is take a bribe. But this judge, this judge was evil. He was corrupt. Uh, there are three characters Jesus gives in this story, uh, and this is our first one. The first character is the corrupt judge. He didn't fear God, and he didn't even respect people. He didn't care if your life was in shambles. He didn't care if someone stole your property, your sheep. He didn't care if someone robbed you. What he cared about was himself. He was looking out for numero uno, number one. And this was a description of a judge in their day. And truly, is it that different today? Now, I would I, it would not be godly to talk bad about people to gossip about people, to talk about people you don't know, to, to mar the reputation of someone. But think about our courts today. At the highest level of judgment in our country, do our judges fear God? Are they believers? Do they fear God and say, if the Bible says this, that's what we ought to follow? Let's give some random examples. Uh, do they believe in Genesis that it says that we have a creator that made us male and female? That's what marriage was meant to be between a husband and a wife. In the highest court of our land, do we fear God? Do we fear what he says about us? Uh, do we respect the sanctity of life? Do we believe in God cares for every human being and every human being should be treated as if they're made in the image of God, every human being? 
It hasn't always been true. Our ancestors, our fathers, they have not always feared God, and today there are still some that do not fear God. So when, when Jesus is giving this parable, he's not giving a hypothetical situation, an extreme to where people would say, oh, I've never known a judge that didn't fear God. I've never known a judge that didn't respect people. As he gives this parable in the minds of many, they have been affected by this. They know that this man that doesn't fear God is wrong before God, but yet he's still a judge. And it's not hypothetical. That happened then, that happens today. In God's word, he's very against that. Um, in the Old Testament, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, when he appointed judges, he said this in 2 Chronicles 19, 6 7. Then he said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for a man, but for the Lord. Who is with you in the matter of judgment? And now may the terror of the Lord be on you. May the fear of God be on you. Watch what you do, for there is no injustice or partiality or taking bribes with the Lord our God. You are not supposed to take a bribe, take money in order to pervert justice, in order to hear someone's case over someone, someone else. You should not selfishly take from people and abuse or ignore uh, the poor, the oppressed. But the judges were prone to being corrupt. In Amos uh, chapter 5, he spoke about them in this way, about judges. They hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate, and they despise the one who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him, you will never live in the houses of cut stone you have built. You will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards you have planted. For I know your crimes are many and your sins innumerable. They oppress the righteous, take a bribe, and deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. That's, that's where they executed justice. So even in, throughout the Old Testament, God gives a case for us to hear and to listen and to learn from. Human judges are not always righteous. Human judges can be corrupt, and they experience that corruption. Uh, the Jews called the judges Diane Gezeroth, that's the Hebrew term for a judge who discerns the law, a judge who determines the law. It's Diane Gezeroth. Well, because they became corrupt, the people called them Diane Gezaloth or Gezaloth. They changed one letter and it went from judges who determine the law to judges who rob, judges who are robbers. And that's what they ended up calling the judges. And so this, is, this hits ho close to home, uh, a judge who robbed. And so these ju this judge had no respect for people. He had no shame, it said in verse 2. No fear of God and no shame. No care for what God has said. And this corrupt judge represents our sinful nature. So Jesus is giving a contrast, not saying, hey, God is like us. God is saying, I want you to have a real picture of how human beings are. Our sinful nature, 
that we were born in sin, that we're born with this sinful nature, this selfish nature, and it even reaches to the depths of leadership, authority, judges, people that are meant to protect the very, the very purpose, the very role in which they were created for, they will go against, and that's the corrupt judge. That's character number one. Character number two is the needy widow. Verse three, and a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. She represents the, the person in their culture that's desperate and lowly. Uh, this is really key to the parable because you may be sitting there right now feeling desperate. Do you feel desperate? Have you ever prayed or come before a higher power and authority and said, I need your help, I cannot do this on my own? It's, it's, a, it's a widow, and there's, she's got three things going against her as a widow. Number one, she is a woman in that day who, although wom- women could be heard in court, they were not the same as men in court that had rights to their property and other things. So she was a woman in that day that already was limited because she also didn't have a husband. She was a widow. So she had no man in her life to protect her, to, uh, to support her, to go to court with her, to claim rights in that town. So she didn't have a husband. She was a widow. She was elderly. She's also poor in this story. She's needy. She cannot get justice for herself, and she can't bribe the judge. Uh, you know, it, it says that, and she kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. She has an adversary, and that word for adversary, she has someone who is working against her. In some way, someone is uh, her attacker, her enemy. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, we hear Peter's famous words, be sober-minded, be alert, because your enemy, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You have an enemy. And this woman has an adversary, and she can't defend herself, so she goes before the judge and says, please, hear my case. But he doesn't want to hear it. It gives this, it gives this image of this lady. I just want to just imagine in your mind's eye. This, this elderly lady goes to this tent, goes to this place at the city gate. There's the elders there, and the elders didn't want anything to do with her. And she, now, I know tents don't have doors, but just imagine, because you can't knock on a flap, but imagine she goes to the tent and, it's me, I have a case for you, would you please hear my case? What do you have to offer me? I have nothing, I'm a widow, but there's an enemy that's working, there, I have an adversary, there's someone who's working against me and I'm not going to get what I need to survive, uh, what I need to live, would you please fight for me on my behalf, get out of here, I have bigger fish to fry, I've got other cases I need to hear, I don't have time for you, and she leaves. Then she comes back the second day. Please judge, I have no husband, I have no brother, I have no nephew, there's no one to hear my case, I have a legal case, I have earned, I deserve these rights, these things, would you please hear my case? I already told you, woman, get out of here. Do you, do you want me? To, don't make it worse. Don't create problems for yourself. I have no, no interest in hearing your case. No respect for women. Day number three. 
please, there's nothing, I have nothing to lose at this point. I need your help. Now, the picture of this persistent widow is, is meant to be in our own minds how desperate and persistent she is in not giving up. And this is supposed to be a mirror to you. How desperate and persistent are you? Have you ever had a prayer request where you felt like you just kept coming to God? God, please, I cannot fix this. I cannot defend myself. I can't do what is right. I am not the judge. Would you please intervene? There is no one else that can plead for me and intervene and and hear my case. Have you ever known of someone that there was some injustice and they were being wronged and you felt bad about it in your stomach? Like, if someone would just do something, protect those children, you know, trafficking, or protect this person who's being wronged and, and, and hurt by their family members or friends or neighbors or community, please, God, step in, do something. That kind of desperation. Have you ever been desperate about prayer, about going to God? That's her. There's, there's a sense of politics in it. He doesn't want to hear her case. And eventually he got tired for it. In verse 4, For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect people. Now, I don't know what this self-reflection was really about. I can't imagine saying, Even though I don't care about God and I don't really like people. I don't know what that felt like. But this guy is admitting and acknowledging it's not about him and it's not about them. Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet, because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. I've seen men on YouTube wrestle cougars and alligators I ain't never seen a man wrestle a woman and win. I ain't never seen it. Have you? Bet you haven't seen it. This guy has this situation where he's like, this woman will not leave me alone. As a matter of fact, the language in here, she keeps pestering me. The the literal translation is, she's giving me a black eye. That's the way, that's the actual terms, but we translate it in English to try to convey the meaning. She's giving me a black eye, meaning... It's my reputation, and she is wearing me out. It's not because I, res- I don't fear God, and I show enough don't respect people. I don't care if you have a problem. But because of numero uno, number one, because I don't want to deal with this, fine. I'm going to give her justice. He knows that she has a case. She knows that she's in the right, and he knows that he can give her justice because it's fair and right. Man, she's wearing me out. So that's characters number one and two. You have the corrupt judge and the desperate, needy widow. And then character number three, Jesus introduces God. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Now just pause for a moment. Why is Jesus saying this? Is it because, is Jesus saying, now listen to what this dear, sweet, qualified teaching judge has to say to you? Is that what he's saying? No. Jesus is using this contrast. He wants you to listen to someone that he doesn't in any other case really want you to listen to. Why? 
because he's revealing something. He's creating a contrast so there's, we're not missing the point of the parable. Listen to what this corrupt man says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Wait, what? What does this have to do with the Son of Man coming and faith? But that's what Jesus ties it to. He wants you to hear and learn from the corrupt, unjust judge and then tie it to faith. And so how can we walk away from this parable learning what Jesus has taught? What is Jesus teaching through the parable? Well, let's think of some of the principles. Number one, what Jesus is teaching is pray for what is right. Pray for what is just. In your prayer life, as you come before God, who represents the true judge, when you come to him desperate, pray for what is just. Pray for what is right. Verse 3, it says, And a widow in that town kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. You know how many times it uses the word justice? Four times in these few verses. Four times. What's really interesting, if you know the language, he uses two different forms of the word to talk about justice. And he does it on purpose. The idea around this justice is this woman comes to him and what she really wants is what is fair and right to the law. Not just for her, but what's right for the law. You know, some people could look at this verse, these verses, 3 and 7 and 8. I'll read 7 real quick. Will not God grant justice uh, to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay in helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. He repeats it. He doesn't say it once, twice, three times, four times. God is interested in justice, but what, what is justice? It's not just public justice. Right? You and I could think about public justice. Let's think about it for just a moment. My, I have family that lives in Oregon, and there's a town, Portland, Oregon, where the streets are riddled with homeless people. And it is so bad in this city. There are so many homeless people dying every single day that now they have set up booths and QR codes where you can... Uh, you can advise someone, you could warn someone, hey, there's a dead body on the ground. Because there's so many of them all over, they don't know who's sleeping or dead. That is the current situation in Portland, Oregon. It is so corrupt, it is so messed up, leadership has failed so horribly in doing what is clearly common sense, not right for people. The laws they have on drugs and addiction and everything else just make zero sense. And it has caused a pandemic there in the city. It's so bad, people are leaving left and right. And we could pray, God, bring people with sound mind and discernment into that town to lead these people away from what's unjust and unfair that's killing these people. Help them. They need a judge. They need leadership that's helpful to them. We could pray for that. We could pray for those in Ukraine. God, stop war. Stop people unfairly attacking someone. But this widow is not praying for public justice. She's praying for personal justice. She's praying with a heart of desperation, God, I need you to give what is right, and not just for me, but what is fair. As I meditated on this verse, I knew almost nobody disagrees with justice. 
There's not people on any side of any aisle and any agreement that, that doesn't say, hey, justice should be served, uh, except for the extreme ungodly, right? The extreme wicked. Most people would say justice is good. But as I reflected on her situation, I realized it was very personal, and it reminded me of a time when uh, I was praying for my family, and I was praying for me and Courtney. And, uh, and this is very genuine and real. But I found myself, I've repented since, but I found myself praying, God, would you change her mind to agree with me? <laughs> I said that in my heart and mind. I might have said it out loud. God, if you, could just, if you could just teach her, if you could just tell her, just show her, open the eyes of her heart, just, just show her how I'm right, just, just have her agree with me. My life would be easier if she agreed with me. And as I was praying this way, not even thinking about it, I wasn't thinking I'm Mr. Selfish, and I'm just thinking about me. I wasn't thinking that. I was, it was a genuine prayer. You know, this situation, it's t- tough. Help her think about me. And God convicted me in my prayer time. Really? That's your prayer for your will to be done? That's your focus? You want someone just to agree? You want it your way? I felt so convicted. And I didn't do, I didn't, I didn't, like pivot and say, oh God, give her everything she wants and and have it her way. I realized what God was teaching me, Lord, not what I want or what I think is right and not even what she thinks is right. Would you help us see what you think is right? What is right in your eyes? What do you desire? I need to approach you like a just king and judge and Lord as if I'm wanting your will to be done, not mine. And, uh, and so I was reflecting on that in this passage, and I was realizing what Jesus was doing with this widow. She wasn't a selfish woman. You could read this story a hundred times. There's no, the widow isn't the selfish one, the judge is. She was desperate for what was right. Are we desperate for what is right? Not our will, not our convenience, but what God wants, what God says is right. Are we praying to God God, in this marriage, in this family, in this community, in this neighborhood, in this church, at this workplace, in this relationship, what you say is right, that's what I desire. I want what you want. I want for you to give justice for what is right. Um, just this weekend, just this weekend, we had, uh, we had a change in rules in our house um, with our kids with screen time. Anybody else deal with screen time, if you know what that is? If you don't know what that is, then then I'm jealous. But we have, we have screens in our house, and we, we have games and different things, and so we have rules about screen time. Well, this weekend, I had to institute a new rule. I had, we had to modify it. Screen time, you know, during the summer, we realized there's certain things about it. Let's change it. And so, you know, being the dad, I need to take responsibility. And so I go to my kids, and I tell them, hey, this is what we need to do. We need to change it. It needs to be like this. And the boys were actually cool with it. They're like, okay, we need to do this. About 15 seconds later, they don't do it. They, they cross the line, and I have another conversation with them, and I'm a little more animated now, and I'm like, listen, you guys, here's the rule. We've got to do this. Here's what it is on screen time. I know, listen, if I were you, I wouldn't like it. I'm not upset with you that you don't particularly love this idea, but this is, this is really good. This is a good boundary. We need to do this. Let's go this way, and they both accept, and they're respectful, and they listen. That's Friday. Go forward 24 hours later. One of them crosses the line again, 
And me, instead of being like God, I'm more like an earthly judge in this moment. I'm a little frustrated. I'm a little upset. And I start raising my voice and I say, now, I've told you this over and over. Here's the rule. This is the way it needs to be. And I'm really giving it to them. And they're, you know, they're taking it really well. And one of my sons is upset with himself and goes, man, I'm so sorry. And then my oldest son, Samuel, I'm so proud of him. Not disrespectful in any way. He says, you know, Dad, you're right. I think this is because it's a new rule and we're not used to this. And so I feel like it's hard for us to get used to this. It's different. And that's why this is the third time you're talking to us. And man, I was proud and disappointed. I was proud in him, disappointed in me. I stopped. I remember looking at him saying, you're right. You're right. I didn't even consider... The fact that it's just been 24 hours, I give you a new rule on something you really like to do, and I'm already laying down the hammer. And there's nothing wrong with authority. We should respect the rules. But I was not a good authority in that moment being impatient with him. And I was so proud of him. He had discernment at 12. I didn't even know that's possible. He had discernment at 12, and he's like, you know, this is new. And he was right. What we ultimately want is what is right. Even kids, we want what is fair and just. And when we go before God, we should go to Him believing and desiring what is truly just, what is fair and good. So pray for what is right. Number two, pray without giving up. Pray without ceasing. Now, He told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. He wanted them to not stop coming to him. Imagine this poor widow who goes to the judge day one, day two, day three. What would you say to yourself at that point? Would you want to give up? Would you say, you know what? He's obviously not going to listen to me. Nothing's going to change. Jesus wanted them to learn from this widow to know don't give up. Don't stop. Don't stop praying. And the widow demonstrates this over and over. In verses uh, 3 through 5, the widow in that town kept coming to him. It's this this sense, this verb of keep going to him. She's going to go to him forever. Yet because this widow keeps pestering me, uh, so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. She doesn't stop. That's the posture of her heart. She goes to God believing that she cannot stop going to God. Uh, there's a poem I came across by a name, it was unknown to me before I read this, Sam Walter Foss. He wrote a poem at the end of this 19th century. It was published in 1896, and the, the poem is titled, The Prayer of Cyrus Brown. It goes like this. There's, there's multiple characters in the story, so I'm going to move side to side each character. Character number one. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. Nay, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped in upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Snow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. Well, it seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front, 
with both thumbs pointing toward the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. And then Cyrus Brown speaks up. Well, last year I fell in Hodgkin's well. Head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up and head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a-standing on my head. (laughs) It's funny when we think about not just different denominations, but people within the same church. We focus on the the position of the body in prayer. But it's not about the position of our body, but the posture of our heart. And of the many lessons we can learn about prayer, this lesson about the, the, this widow, this persistent widow is, the posture of your heart, is it to give up in prayer? Are you hopeless or beaten down or torn down and feel like, you know what? There, there will be no justice, there will be no good, there will be no deliverance. What Jesus is trying to teach us is, don't lose heart, don't give up. The posture of your heart should be to continue and to never stop praying and to never give up. It's repeated by Paul's famous words in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. What does it mean to pray without stopping? Does it mean 24 hours a day you're talking to God and saying, God, I need this, God, I need this, God, I need this. No, it's a, it's a lifestyle of you are never, you are never not. That's a double negative. You will not stop going to God in prayer. Like the last song we prayed uh, or we sang during the worship song, the worship set. To go to God in prayer, to not give up going to God. And why? Because we can pray to God in trust which is number three, pray with trust in God. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Think about God. Think about the relationship between the judge and the widow. The widow was a stranger. The judge did not care about the widow. The judge could move on, and this widow meant nothing to him. But God's elect, his people, his chosen people, those who have placed their faith in him, does he not love us as a father loves a child? Isn't his relationship with us different than this judge with the widow? Will he not grant justice? Will he delay in helping them? What's the longest time you've ever taken to pray for something? Weeks, months, years. I remember one time going through, uh, is it uh, Isaac and Rebecca? Maybe Isaac, Isaac's story with Jacob and Esau. They got married, and it wasn't for 20 years they couldn't have a child. Praying for 20 years for his wife to have a son. And how long they waited. What's the longest time you've ever prayed about something? God's, God's encouragement to you is, Do not stop. Don't give up coming to him because God is your father. He's not like this judge. The idea isn't, isn't God just like unjust judges? No, it's, he's better. It's a contrast. He's way better than this judge. If he is way better than this judge, since he is way better than this judge, won't he execute justice for you? Won't he care for you? I tell you, he will swiftly grant them justice. 
Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And that's the crux of the matter. When he returns, will he find those who trust him? Why did Jesus end with this seemingly odd statement? When the Son of Man will come, comes, when he returns, will he find faith on earth? You know what he's doing? He's bringing in the fourth character, but the fourth character is you. When Jesus returns, will he find a faithful you? Will he find someone that trusts him so dearly that you will not give up praying, that you will not give up trusting him, that you will believe that he's a just judge, that he will not delay, that he will swiftly execute justice? Do you realize if, if you're waiting for God to answer a prayer, it's not because he's distracted, it's not because he's doing something else, it's not because he's ignorant, it's not because he's avoiding you. If you have a prayer that you're bringing to God and he hasn't, quote, answered it yet, it's because it's for your benefit. It is for your benefit that he is delaying and he repeats it over and over in Scripture. I will swiftly execute justice. I will give to those who come to me. I will not turn them away. I do not disown them. If I, look, if I notice the sparrow that's worth nothing and he falls on the ground, will I not care for you? Don't I treat you better than the grass and the flowers of the field? Is there anything in creation that I've made like you in my image and called you to be my own? Over and over, God reminds us, you belong to me and I love you like a father. So the idea is, Will you trust him and will you be faithful if he were to return back? Everybody living, when Luke wrote these words, sometime maybe in the 60s, maybe 50s, whenever Luke wrote these words, everyone around him thought, Jesus is going to return in my lifetime. They all wrote like that. They all thought like that. Even Peter mentions it. I know it's been a long time, but God's not slow like some count slowness. He's wanting for people to be saved. They all thought, Jesus is going to come back in my lifetime. And when Jesus says, will the Son of Man find faith when he returns, he's putting it back on us. Will you trust him like this, and how will that trust affect your prayers? Will you not cease to pray? Let's, let's pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these parables that are instructive to teach us what is right, what you say is right how to view you, how to come to you. We pray that you would teach us and that you would give us encouragement, that you would give us perseverance. Give us the endurance to not stop praying. Give us the strength uh, to endure these, uh, the trials that we're going through. I pray for my brothers and sisters as they're discouraged like uh, this widow must have been discouraged. Would you lift them up and protect them? Would you provide for them? Would you be a husband to the widow and a father to the orphan? Would you care for them in their need? And would you, would you increase our faith? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.